Well, our sermon this morning comes from Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 39. That's Luke chapter 2 and verse 39. You'll find that on page 858 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And as always, I do want to encourage you to have a copy of the Word of God with you this morning. Um, Of course, the Scripture will be on the screen in a moment, but what we're going to be doing as we do um, uh, generally is working verse by verse through God's Word. It'll be helpful for you to have that. We'll be referring back to it throughout this time together. and I think it'll be helpful for you to stay engaged and to be reminded that what we're studying is it's not man's Word, but it is God's Word. And so you'll find that on Luke chapter 2, verses 39 or page 858 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a copy of God's Word of your own, we'd love for you just take that pew Bible as our gift to you. And so hopefully you found your way to our text this morning. Hear now the Word of God. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And when the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 20 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, Father, we thank You for Your Word in which we can set our hearts on. We pray, Father, that You would be our great aid this morning through Your Spirit, that You would come and speak to us and help us and guide us and lead us as we want to consider Jesus as He is revealed to us in this text. We want to know Him. We want to follow Him and cherish Him and obey Him. Father, we pray that You would come and minister to us. You would serve us. That we might might hear from You. That we might know You. You might bind up those who are discouraged this morning. That You might fan the flame of those who are lazy this morning. That You might correct those in sin this morning. We want all this because we understand that our peace and joy and purpose in life is found when we are following You faithfully. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the summer of 1970, uh, Topps Baseball Cards issued a, a special service of baseball cards. They're called the Boyhood Photos of the Stars. Rather than having a picture of the baseball player with a bat or a glove and his current state, 
they actually had an old black and white photo of the current baseball store star, but when he was a young boy. And then in the corner, they had a picture of what he looked like today. These were incredibly popular. In fact, they soon became hard to get because it was, it was very exciting for these, uh, these little baseball players to grab these cards and realize that the greats that they watch and listen to today were once little boys like them. And they could imagine what it might be like to grow up to be Mike Schmidt or Rod Carew. Well, Luke gives us a similar snapshot here. We, of course, in our study of Luke, have seen the birth of Jesus. And then we saw him when he was eight days old being circumcised. And then again at 40 days old when he was being dedicated and presented in the temple. In a little while, and in the coming weeks, we'll see him when he's 30 years old. But what about his childhood? What about his teen years? What about his 20s? The only thing that we have, the only reference in Scripture that we have is this, this passage in front of us. And therefore, it's incredibly unique and, and fascinating, I believe, and amazing. And I'm, I'm excited to spend some time uh, in it with you. Of course, this has been unsatisfying to many people throughout the ages, that this is all we have of three decades of Jesus' life. And so it began around the third century in which people begin to write stories of what Jesus must have been like as a child. We call these apocryphal books. Uh, perhaps you heard of the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, and things like that, written centuries, two or three centuries after the life and death of Jesus Christ. And in many of them, they imagine what life was like for Jesus. In fact, many people imagine life must have been pretty easy for Jesus as a boy. Almost as if he, you know, was wearing the peasant clothes, but underneath he had the Superman suit on. In fact, one story is um, that he, and he, when he's eight years old, he and Joseph were, were cutting a piece of wood to make a bed frame, and, and Joseph cut the wood too short, which would have been a, a costly mistake. And Jesus says, don't worry about it, Dad, and, and you grab one end, and I'll grab the other end, and they, and they just pulled the piece of wood till it was perfect. Uh, another story had Jesus out playing in the mud, and, and he was making uh, little figurines out of the mud, and he made these little sparrows out of the mud. The problem is he was doing this on the Sabbath, and the other boys saw what he was doing and, and, and knew he was violating the customs of the Sabbath, and so they ran back to Joseph to tell them that their boy is violating the Sabbath. And when Joseph was coming, Jesus simply just breathed on the mud sparrows, and they became alive and, and flew off. And saying, what, what sparrows, Dad? What are you talking about? Um, other stories about Jesus' youth are not as flattering. There are a story, a story from the third century that when Jesus was being taught the alphabet, his, his teacher said to him, say Olive. And he said, Olive. And then his teacher said, okay, say Bet. And he said, Bet. Oh, oh excuse me. He wouldn't say Bet. He says, no, I'm not going to say Bet. I'm not going to say Bet until you tell me what Olive means. At this, his teacher became so frustrated with him and raised his hand to strike him. At that, Jesus immediately struck his teacher and his, his hand became paralyzed. Uh, another story, in fact, uh, from an apocryphal book says, when Jesus was five years old, he was playing at the ford of a brook and he gathered together into pools uh, the water that flowed by and made it at once clean. But the son of An- Annas, who was standing there, And he took a branch with it and dispersed the water which Jesus had gathered together. When Jesus saw what he was done, he was enraged and said to him, You insolent, godless dunderhead, what harm did the water do to you? See now, you shall wither like a tree and shall bear neither leaves nor root nor fruit. And immediately the lad withered up completely. But the parents of him 
that were withered took him away, bewailing his youth, and brought him to Joseph and reproached him, saying, What a child you have who does such things. After this, he again went through the village, and a lad ran and knocked against his shoulder. Jesus was exasperated to him and said, You shall not go on your way. And the child immediately fell down and died. But some who saw it took um, saw, took what pla- saw what took place said, From where does this child spring? Since every word is a, an accomplished deed. Now I think if I was probably a five-year-old boy who happened to be divine, I would probably wither some people too. I, I don't know, there's some, pe- some kids in, from elementary school that maybe a brother, at least temporarily. Um, but do you, do, you, do you like this Jesus? It sounds like a, if I, a brat to me. It sounds like a, a vengeful, self-centered boy who is going to hurt people if he doesn't get his own way. And this is the imagination, of course, of many people wondering what it must have been like. And in fact, after these stories, the story we come to is pretty tame, I think. No one withers. No one's paralyzed. In fact, I think it probably therefore speaks to its authenticity that it actually happened. To stories, you know, of his parents finding Jesus. And, and I say that not in the way that we Baptists say, you know, have you found Jesus? They actually literally lost Jesus. And they literally found him. The, it's an amazing story in which I think what Luke is trying to do is trying to help us to understand Jesus' identity. He's almost taking us along, not only so that we can understand Jesus' identity, but, but almost showing us when Jesus began to understand his identity, who he is. In fact, I think uh, we'll learn uh, from verse 49, which I believe is the heart of this passage, that Jesus is the Son of God. It's something that he seems to learn here at age 12 or come to a greater understanding of what that means. But before we, we get to, the, if you will, the heart of the passage, Luke shows us very clearly Jesus as a human being. In fact, the first thing I think we ought to learn here from, from this text is, is Jesus as a human being. You notice, uh, according to verse 39, we begin there. When, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. You'll notice this passage ends with a similar text in verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in his stature and in favor with God and man. What we see here is just simply normal language of what it's like to to grow up, the the growth of a child. For instance, in 1 Samuel, it says the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And so Luke's just telling us Jesus is growing up. He's just uh, uh, 40 days and grew up to age 12. And then he tells a story. And then after that, he says from, from age 12, he continued to grow up and, until he was 30, which is we'll see in chapter 3, he'll mention his age once again. And I think this is helpful for us to understand because we might think, well, well Jesus being divine, he, he had all the wisdom he ever needed, for instance. He, he never increased in any attribute whatsoever. But you notice what he's saying is that, that he grew, he increased. In fact, you see, first of all, that, that he grew physically. Verse 40 says that he, the child grew and became strong. And then again, verse 52, we read that he increased in stature. This helps us to realize Jesus was a born as a real baby with all the real baby needs, woke up crying, maybe needed to be burped or changed or fed. Six months, he learned to sit up. Around eight months, he learned to crawl. Close to year one, Jesus, the Son of God, learned to walk. As a boy, he went through puberty. His voice changed. His face blushed. His muscles grew. He got peach fuzz on his lip, right? And, And, you know, he's 
flex his muscles for his sisters and wrestled with the other boys. There's a growth chart on the wall in Jesus' house. People will come up to him and say, boy, what, what a big boy you're becoming. Soon you'll be taller than your dad. And this is just a, uh, he grew up, Luke says. Just understand, he increased in stature. But he not only grew physically, evidently he grew intellectually. Or maybe you, you would like he grew spiritually. In fact, verse 40 tells us he grew in wisdom. And again in verse 52, he increased in wisdom. And here is maybe we struggle a little bit because we say, okay, I, I understand, Stephen, that Jesus has a human body, but isn't his mind divine, right? And we want to think, at least there's this temptation to think that he's a God inside a human body. That's actually an ancient heresy called Apollinarianism. And, and it's important for us to understand that Jesus not only had a human body, but he had a human mind which means he learned things that he did not previously know. There came a time when Jesus learned two plus two is four. There came a time when he learned to read. There came a time in which he learned to write. Jesus memorized scripture like you and I memorized scripture. I trust he struggled with it and went over and over again. He grew in wisdom, the application of God's word. He learned, in other words, the son of God, how to apply the word of God to his life. Now we say, wait a second, I thought God's omniscient. I thought God knows everything. And certainly Jesus, as the Bible clearly presents, is God, the second person of the triune God. And yet we also know that Jesus emptied himself, that he, he laid aside, he, he, that is, he did not draw upon the divine attributes which were his to draw upon. And clearly his omniscience is one of those attributes in which he chose not to, to draw upon as he lived a life as a human, which means he was educated. He would start being educated by his parents. There was no public school at this time. He would go to religious school at age six, but growing up, he would be educated by his mom and dad. And I wonder, what, what do you think of that job? I mean, how, what would it be like to, to teach uh, the perfect child, right? Uh, some of you moms may think, well, I'll take that job. That sounds okay, right? But can you imagine if like God showed up and said, Listen, I'm gonna, you're gonna have a child and this, and she's gonna be the greatest musician ever. And I just want you to begin her and her training to become the greatest musician that the world has ever seen. I mean, he's coming to this, not a rabbi, but a carpenter and says, your son, by the way, will be the, the most wise, the greatest teacher ever. And, and you start that process. I imagine it'd be intimidating. I imagine, um, it would be, um, awesome in, in, in a daunting task as, they wanted Jesus to teach him and apply the word of God. You also see that he grew up relationally. Verse 52, for instance, says, um, in favor with God and man, people thought very highly of him. And as he grew, they continued to, to think so. They would soon call him rabbi, though he had no, had no rabbinical training. He also had the favor of God on him. And it's not that God began to like Jesus more and more. I, I think verse 52 is best understood in light of verse 40, which says, and the favor of God was upon him that God's favor rested upon Jesus. And so, and everybody recognized that, that God's hand was upon him and it was clear to everyone. We see Jesus was a human and, and he was human in every way, just as you and I are human. And, and therefore we see as a human, he worshiped God, which is where we kind of pick up this very fascinating story. It's in the worship of God with God's people. Note verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And so note, uh, I think an interesting phrase in verse 41 is that they're doing this every year. So on the 15th of the month of Nisan, which is sometime in our March or our April, that they would go to Jerusalem from Nazareth, the 80 mile trip to, to celebrate the miraculous redemption that God uh, gave to Israel when they were in bondage in Egypt. 
According to the law of God, only men aged 13 and older were required to make this pilgrimage. The women would be often left behind with their children. But you notice what Luke tells us about who went in verse 41. It was just not Joseph, but he says it is his parents. In fact, his parents go to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Interesting to give us an insight into the religious environment in which Jesus was raised, that, that his parents wanted to worship God. His mom, along with his dad, wanted to do this together, I trust, as a family. Even though the distance from Nazareth to, to Jerusalem was great and the cost to a poor family with little means would have been prohibitive. The challenge to leave home for 10 days or even up to a fortnight uh, would have been troublesome. And yet God wanted them to worship him in the, in the gathered congregation of God's people to come together as my people in order to honor me and to worship me. And Mary and Joseph wanted to be part of that. In fact, they wanted to be part of that every year, Luke tells us. Well, he also lets us know that they did not go leave their children behind for verse 42 explains. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And so they brought Jesus uh, with them. And I, I trust they're bringing their other sons and daughters. We know from the Bible that Jesus had at least four brothers um, and uh, at least two sisters. The brothers, we know their names. We don't know the sisters' names, but we know that he had plural sisters. So at least uh, seven children in that family, perhaps more than that. And I trust that they're all traveling there. But can you imagine what that'd be like if you're a... Uh, a 12-year-old boy who grows up in a very uh, primitive village of Nazareth and all of a sudden now you're walking into this bustling metropolis of Jerusalem. Can you imagine the, the, the shock that must be or the adventure that you might think about having there? Um, in fact, one uh, commentator imagines it this way. When the jostling Mary throng passed through the gates of the holy city, a grand sight met Jesus' 12-year-old eyes. Some 200,000 pilgrims resided within the walled city. Every available space was rented. Merchants who had come in advance lined the streets, displaying their wares, and beggars stationed themselves strategically by the city's ancient gates. The most intense activity was at the sheep stalls, where pilgrims bartered for sheep and goats to sacrifice at the temple. Of course, the family is here to do that, to sacrifice at the temple to celebrate the Passover. In fact, there would be some time during this week in which they would go to a sheep stall and they would buy one of the quarter million sheep that would be sold there in Jerusalem. Perhaps this time Joseph let Jesus pick it out. Now, sun rose on the day of Passover. There would be activity everywhere, especially within the temple. In fact, all 24 divisions of the priests would be on duty during the week of uh, Passover. It would be uh, uh, this massive undertaking and Joseph would have taken his pre-adolescent son, Jesus, into the temple courts. The gates of the temple courts would be closed behind the vast worshipers and a ram's horn would sound and, and Jesus would look and watch his, his uh, adopted father Joseph along with thousands of other worshipers slaughter his family's lamb as a priest with a silver bowl collected the blood under the lamb's throat. He would then take that blood and spray it upon the altar. In the midst of all this, Jesus would hear the Levites singing the Hallel Psalms. Psalm 113 through 118, as his father would dress the lamb and eventually sling it over his shoulder and depart with one young Jesus in tow. They would eventually reach the place where they're staying and prepare the Passover meal. The lamb would be roasted on a pomegranate spit over an open fire, and the family would eat the meal at sundown. One has explained it would go this way. In the flickering amber light of the candle-decked room, the meal was joyfully consumed 
according to the Passover liturgy with interspersed hand washings, prayers, and singing. At the conclusion, a son, perhaps Jesus was given this privilege, would ask his father the ceremonial question. Why is this night different from all other nights? At this, Joseph would explain to his family, as he did every year, that their people were once in bondage to Egypt, and God in his great power would send an angel of death to slay all the firstborn, all except those who sacrificed a lamb in their place, and took the blood of that lamb and put it over the, the door post, over the doorway, and the angel would pass over, and God in his great power and might would deliver us, would redeem us through the shedding of the blood of a lamb. Jesus would go to sleep that night, I imagine, with all these images in his mind, dazzling image of the Passover. He's, he's there along with God's people, just one boy amongst hundreds of thousands to worship God. You also see as a human, he longed for the word. That's where the story gets interesting. You see, after being there for a week, the family would depart. And as you know, they forgot something, namely the Messiah, as we see in verse 43. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. You see, evidently Jesus could not get enough, and so he decided to stay behind. Now, how can you lose a child? All you without children are wondering. I would suggest to you it's not as difficult as you might imagine. Of course, they would have implicit faith in Jesus, right? You know, uh, if, you're, if you're a parent, you understand that there are some children you keep closer eyes on than other children, right? And we don't, we don't need to name names, but do we understand that we, there's, you know, Jesus was the responsible boy. He was where he was always where he was supposed to be. And moreover, the family wouldn't travel, travel just as a family. We'll see in a moment they traveled by caravan, these large groups of family members, huge, massive families, and plus cousins and aunts and uncles and in-laws and grandparents, this vibrant spiritual community traveling to, to worship. God, perhaps a hundred or several hundred people would travel together for safety and protection. I don't know if you ever traveled in a large group, but sometimes it's not easy. I once took 50 teenagers uh, on a 800 mile trip by fleet of 15 passenger vans. Most stressful week in my life. One of our vans broke down halfway and I got 50 teenagers on the side of an interstate trying to play ultimate frisbee. And it, it was just a big mess and it's hard, it's stressful. And I trust this stressful here. And you also understand that the women and the children would travel in the front of the caravan. Men would stay behind and, and travel at the rear of the caravan. And, and Jesus is kind of in between age. And so I imagine Joseph must have thought he must be with Mary and Mary must have thought he must be with Joseph. Perhaps they thought he was with their cousins or their aunts and so forth until the day's journey ends and the families get back together. It'll be a, about a three or four day journey and they realize there's not Jesus around. No, verse 44. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey and when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, you see, he's, he's lost. You can imagine that, that frantic search. We've lost our son, and, and not just any son. I mean, we have lost the Savior of the world. That's a, I mean, that's a bad day. And, and, you, and, and they're running up to people. Have you seen Jesus? And when's the last time you've seen Jesus? And they're going from person to person, and, and there's this growing panic until they finally realize we have left him in Jerusalem, as we see at the end of verse 45. 
They returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, can you imagine that feeling for a moment? Um, in fact, I think we should probably give Mary and Joseph a break. Um, I don't know if you, you've ever taken your kids to a mall or amusement park or even the church building, and, and they disappear for a couple of minutes. In fact, just show of hands. Anybody ever lost a child? Anybody? Yeah, look at that. Look at that. It's like a weekly occurrence for us. So, um, right? It's common. It's not rare. But you know it's some of the most terrifying moments in your life. Right? And, and, and you, you are, your, your heart is beating and the adrenaline is pumping and you call louder and louder the longer they're missing and you, and, and, and you're scared and you're angry and you're embarrassed and you're, you're thinking about the worst case situation and, and all these horrible thoughts are running through your mind. In fact, in preparing for this message, I, I learned about a story of a mom who took her son to Chuck E. Cheese for a birthday party, and she left her son there at Chuck E. Cheese. Now, I've been to Chuck E. Cheese, and you could lose a whole family there. So I don't. This is this is not hard to believe. They, they all piled in the the large family piled into three cars to re, return home. Except six-year-old Mikey wanted to stay and play. He was found by an employee at closing time at 10 p.m. Unfortunately, Mikey didn't know his last name or his phone number or how to get home whatsoever. And mom thought he was with grandma and they didn't even realize Mikey was gone until the morning of, of the next day. Now, Jesus is not left at Chuck E. Cheese or the mall or the church building. He's left in Jerusalem with 200,000 pilgrims and all sorts of people there. In fact, as I mentioned, he is there for three days as we see in verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple. He'll be one day out, I think, is what Luke's telling us, and then one day to return, and then on the third day, they would find him. You notice where they found him. Luke tells us, we're reading on. They found him in the, in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. You see, he's learning, isn't he? This boy has a thirst to understand God's word. He wants to discuss God's word and he wants to learn from God's word. And, and, and here's a 12-year-old boy for three days in Jerusalem. You think of all the places he could be. He could be in the marketplace. He could be find some other boys p- pretending to defend the city. He could be exploring Hezekiah's famous water tunnels or some other uh, historical site. He could be getting into mischief, couldn't he? He, he could uh, just be idling his time away. But we, what we find, Jesus, is that he is learning God's word. He wants to know more about God's word. This is 12 years old, right? Right on the cusp of being a teenager. And, and for some reason in, in our culture, we have this idea that teenagers is just kind of a period of prolonged adolescence, a prolonged childhood where, where you get an adult body, but you get to act like a teen, a, a kid. You get to act like a child. Um, and and we, we, we think that this teenage Time is kind of a period of this, like this twilight zone that they walk in. We just hope they emerge when they're in their 20s. And we, we hear about this all the time. Of course, we don't have a teenager, so I'm going to speak totally out of ignorance. But we, we hear about it all the time. People comment upon our family. As, uh, perhaps they comment on yours. And, and, and quite often they, they say things like, well, yeah, they, they're behaved now, but you just wait till they're teenagers. Right? In fact, I was putting my son to bed uh, just about three weeks ago, and he says, Dad, we were at the grocery store, and the lady said... Uh, to us, you know, when we're teenagers, well, then we'll stop. We'll start to disobey you. And then we'll start to not listen to you. Um, and, and he said, well, why did she say that? And I said, son, she said it because people say stupid things. Right? It's stupid. It's not a biblical idea, certainly not. Um, and again, I'm speaking out of ignorance, and you could, you could point your finger at me in about five years and say, I told you so, perhaps. But, 
I'm not so sure. I think Jesus came to live as a human to show us what a human life is supposed to live like, what, what a 12-year-old boy is supposed to live like. And, and here we see Jesus wanting to know God better. What about you? You want to know God better? Or do you know enough? Do you have a hunger, a thirst for His Word, a desire to hear from Him? Jesus did. In fact, it would be customary after the feast for the, the chief theologians of that day to remain for what they called theological disputations. They would share their latest insight into the Word of God. And evidently, this was an opportunity too great for Jesus to pass up. He hungered for this knowledge. As you see in verse 46, what he's doing, he's doing two things there, sitting among the teachers. He is, one, listening to them, and he is, two, asking them questions. He's not faking this. He's not saying, I already know everything. I'm just kind of messing with you guys. He clearly wants to learn from them. And, and so he is, he is listening to what they have to say. And then he's, he's asking them for clarification. In fact, that's not all that he's doing because he's evidently also answering them as well. Note verse 47. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And so we know in this day, the rabbis would gather people to sit at their feet and then and the, they would take questions from their students and then they would kind of answer the question, but kind of turn it back onto their students and then ask their students a question, try to guide them into understanding these truths. And it seems like that's what's happening here. And they're, they're, Jesus would ask a question, they would turn it back on Jesus and he would answer. And his understanding, his questions, his insight, according to verse 47, amazed them. In my mind's eye, I picture a crowd starting to gather. There's this 12-year-old boy holding his own with, with some of the brightest theological minds of this day. Undeniable, his great understanding, leaving everyone, as, as Luke tells us, amazed. Everyone except his mother. As you know, verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you with great distress. You see, her, her motherly instinct takes over here, doesn't it? Why are you treating this, us this way, she asked her son. Right? It sounds like a mom, doesn't it? It's right down to the, your father and I. Right? And she, she seems to, I mean, she, she walks in this situation, never mind the fact that her 12-year-old son is holding court with a, the highest-ranking officials in the Israelite religion, never mind the fact that people are spellbound by him. She walks up to him and says, young man, what in the world do you think you're doing? Don't you understand? Your father and I have been, have been searching for you for three days and we have been sick with worry. There is no halo upon her head, no composure. She does not say, oh, there you are, son, of course, in the temple. In fact, why don't I just go sit over here and you let us know when you're done and we can go on home. No, she is freaking out a little bit. He's a boy. She's his mother. And, and her relief at finding him quickly turns to anger, as it would be with you and I. She was clearly upset with what Jesus has put her through. She hasn't eaten in three days. She hasn't slept in three days. And she's certainly not used to trouble with him. And it's an answer to Mary's question. It's an answer to this rebuke that we hear the first words that Jesus would ever speak. And it is the reason that Luke gave us this passage, I believe. As we learn that Jesus teaches us, and I think Jesus is beginning to understand, he's just not a human, is he? He's not a boy. But he's the Son of God. We see, secondly, Jesus as the Son of God. Look what he says, verse 49. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? 
Now, that's an extraordinarily startling statement. And it may not startle us because uh, we may not understand the context as well as we, we hope. And certainly we live in a, in a time when, when this, these type of statements are made all the time. But remember that, that Jesus, though he's been to this annual feast many times, that this is a special year for him. Luke tells us he's 12 for a reason. Luke could have told us his story without mentioning his age, but Luke wants us to understand that, that Jesus was, was 12 at this time. You see, in, in the Jewish culture, when a boy becomes 13 years old, he becomes an adult man. Economically, socially, religiously, he takes upon adult responsibility. He becomes a son of the commandment. He becomes a full member of the synagogue. He he um, becomes uh, has his own responsibility towards God. He has his own faith towards God, and, and he learns a trade and he begins to work for himself. And so, therefore, from age twelve to thirteen is this time of intense mentoring for a a boy between, with his father. Joseph would be apprenticing uh, Jesus on a trade. He would be teaching him about life and, and especially about faith. And he's probably perhaps been doing this for quite some time. Uh, and during this 12 year, uh, this Jesus 12th year, and this would be an incredibly therefore important Passover for Jesus. There would be this intense instruction happening that Joseph would have taken him and said, okay, this is the temple. And this is why there's a temple. And this is, these are the sacrifices. And this is why we sacrifice and why we come here and why the lamb. And, and of all the years that he would be spending time with his father, this would be the time. Joseph would be teaching him, walking him through the city. And they find him, and and Mary strides up to her 12-year-old son and and says here in verse 48, Why are you treating us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, we think she's mentioning your father and I to add a little strength to the rebuke in which she's bringing to Jesus. But I think Luke is trying to help us understand something different. That he's told us already that this is a special year for Jesus, a special Passover. And Mary is saying, son, you're supposed to be with your father. You're supposed to be following your father. You're supposed to be honoring your father. You're supposed to be listening to your father. How dare you of all the time dishonor your father? And Jesus looks at her and says, mom, I am with my father. I am in my father's house. Don't you understand? God's my father. This is where I'm supposed to be. He's answering her question. And, and this is the year that the father's supposed to tell him who he is and what he's doing and where he's going. And, and Jesus is saying, Mom, it's beginning. And almost every theological commentator believes that it is at this time which God begins to give Jesus this messianic consciousness, that he begins to begin to reveal to himself who he is and why he has come to this earth, that this revelation has begun to take place in this Passover. Certainly he's been taught by Mary and Joseph um, as best as they can. Certainly he understands he's not like other children. But we, we know that he is learning content. We know he has a, not only a divine mind but a human mind. We've already seen in verse 40 and verse 52 that he's increasing in wisdom and knowledge. We, we know the Bible tells us that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. I don't think Jesus was born with pre-existing memories. I don't think he was at age three thinking about, oh, I remember when I created everything. Or at age five, you know, I remember when I parted the Red Sea. I don't, I don't think he had that understanding at all. I, certainly, I don't think you tell a six-year-old boy or a three-year-old boy, by the way, you're going to die upon a cross for all of humanity. I don't think that's information you give to a child in that state of development. But it's now at the cusp of being a man. 
And it seems like God is beginning to reveal these truths to him. And many have speculated that, that what if that why Joseph was walking him around and showing him everything and teaching him about the temple and the sacrifice and the Passover, that God, his father, was, was doing the exact same thing except at a much deeper level. And, and he was saying to Jesus, listen, this temple, you're, you're the temple. You're going to make this place obsolete. And these streets that you're walking on, one day you're going to walk on them again, son, but you're going to be carrying a cross. And this Passover lamb that you see being sacrificed, you are the lamb. It seems like his real father is mentoring him at the age of 12, revealing himself to him. And by the time Mary and Joseph found him, he's a different boy. He's changed. He says, I have to be my father's house. I mentioned that's startling. We live in a day in which we refer to God as father um, without thinking about it much. In fact, not even non-Christians will do so. But it would be unheard of in Jesus' day. No one in the Old Testament ever referred to God as their father. Way too intimate. Way way too close. No one would ever dare to say something like that except Jesus. Because he understood that's who he was. And therefore he said, I must be here. I must be. There's his priority on his life now. This is where I have to be, mom. And, And Jesus would live this life with his divine priority to do God's will. I must preach the kingdom of God. He said, the son of man must suffer many things and be killed and rise on the, raised on the third day. I have other sheep. I must bring them in also. The Bible tells us he must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. He would live his life doing what his father called him to do, even to the point at Gethsemane saying, not my will, but, but my Father's will. Your will, let that be done. I will do whatever you ask me to do. It is the, the priority upon my life. And now Jesus at this point, all of his other relationships have now changed because of who he understands he now is. At age 12, God, God calls him. God says, begins to lay out for him who he would be, that he would live this life, this life of obedience, die this death of substitution. It reminds me of a story that I came across this week of a man named Alan Gardner. He's a South American missionary in the 1800s. On a December night about 200 years ago, Mrs. Gardner found her little boy sleeping on the cold, hard floor in her bedroom. And it's like any mother, she picked him up and put him in bed. And this woke Alan up and he protested against his mom saying, uh, Mom, one day I'm going to travel the world for Christ and I need to get used to hardship. He was six years old. He would do exactly what he predicted. He would travel through South America distributing Bibles and not received well. Often, often escaping with his own life. He would go to Chile and Argentina and Bolivia. He once trucked a, a thousand miles from Buenos Aires to Santiago, giving out Bibles. It was in his late 50s that Alan Gardner died, along with his missionary teams at the hands of a hostile indigenous people. His body was found next to his boat with his journal still in his hand. The last words he wrote are these. Let not this mission fail. I beg thee to raise up others and to send forth laborers into this harvest. Let it be seen for the manifestation of thy glory and grace that nothing is too hard for thee. And it all begin at age six. And here Jesus is saying, I must follow my father now. I, I must do my father's will now. I must be in my father's house. In fact, he said, Mom, you should have known this. You notice he says in verse 49, it's kind of confusing, at least initially. Why were you looking for me? 
That's kind of a crazy statement, right? I mean, you've been missing for three days. What do you mean, why am I looking for you? Um, But he goes on, he explains what he means. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? If anyone should know, it should be Mary and Joseph. So did she know? Well, look in verse 50. There's your answer. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to him. If verse 49 is the heart of what this passage is trying to teach, I think verse 50 is perhaps the closest application we could bring. You see, even after all of this, Mary and Joseph are confounded by him. They're confused by him. They don't understand him. And he's not being cryptic. Sometimes Jesus is cryptic. Sometimes he's, he's purposely cryptic and everybody goes, what is he talking about? And then he explains it and everybody goes, oh, yeah, now we see. But he's not doing that here. He's saying, don't you know this? In fact, Jesus here is, is acting, I think, in what we would call a, a, at least a seemingly irresponsible way. He, he doesn't even say, Mom, I'm going to stay behind for three days. You go on ahead, I'll, I'll catch up with you. He, and then he goes on to rebuke his mom for being upset with him. Is that not confusing? He doesn't understand. She doesn't know what's going on. She's confounded by this. And, and on top of that, all she says, God is my father. And no one has ever said that. And she's totally confused. The Bible doesn't say, she said, well, of course I know what you're talking about. Of course I understand all of this. In fact, you notice verse 48? She's not only confused, but she's astonished. And when, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. I, when I was studying this passage, I thought, why astonished? Of all the emotions to first experience, when you find your boy after three days, why, why is it astonished? What, what's happening that's astonishing? And I don't think it's the fact that he's sitting with all these theologians. I, I don't think it's the fact that he was even left behind. I, I think she's astonished because it didn't seem to bother him. He's making no effort whatsoever to get back to mom and dad. He is totally content debating theology in the temple. Totally unconcerned about the anxiety that this has brought on his parents. Now, I did an experiment this week. I knew I was going to preach this text, and so I like to teach the text to my children before they come at, uh, on Sunday morning. And we were talking about this text on the, the dinner table, and I said, let's, let's do an experiment. Um, if Let's say we, our family went on vacation, and, and you had such a good time, you said, you know, I want to stay here a couple more days. And we left, and you, you decided to stay behind, and you didn't tell mom and dad. And it was three days later that we found you. And I asked my children, what do you think mom and dad will be feeling during those three days, right? And my kids are 10, 9, 6, 7, and, and so forth. I think that's their age, somewhere around there, right? Right, okay. Um, what will we be feeling? And, and so we went around the table, sad, scared, angry. Someone said freaking out, right? I think mom, mom freaking out, right? And listen, my kids are not smarter than, they're bright, they're not smarter than Jesus, He knows exactly what he's putting his parents through. He knows the anxiety in which they must be feeling. And she can't understand it. She's astonished. She's confused. Other people in verse 47 are amazed. They're perplexed. They don't have a category for a 12-year-old boy who knows God's word like this. You look back and how people are reacting to Jesus in this story, amazed, astonished, confounded, confused. And what Luke is doing is he is preparing you and I for the rest of his book. In fact, I think he's preparing you and I for the rest of your life. 
Because whether you believe in Jesus or not, you will find him, if you have not already found him, confounding and confusing. And dare I say, at times, disturbing and difficult to understand. That he will do things in your life and he will say things in your life that he will not explain well. And he, he will, and, and you're going to have trouble accepting it. Because you're going to think, this is not how you're supposed to behave. This is not the way you're supposed to act. I, I, I've given my life to you. I want to serve you. I have all these ambitions to live my life for Jesus. I have all these plans in which I'm supposed to carry out for the, your glory. And now everything is messed up. This is not how you're supposed to treat me. You will find yourself in those places if you're not there already today. He will confuse you and confound you and at times disturb you. Elizabeth Elliot wrote a book called No Graven Image. In the book, it's a story, it's a fiction based upon a missionary who goes into a tribe to translate the Bible. And the end of the book, he's killed by the tribe and there is no Bible. End of story. That's how it ends. She said she received all sorts of nasty letters saying God would never treat a faithful servant that way. In fact, one seminary president wouldn't sell in his uh, bookstore, his library, because God, that's not how God treats faithful Christian people who want to serve him. Of course, the story is largely based upon exactly what happened with her husband and four other missionaries who were smeared to death, leaving behind five wives and uh, many little children. This is what she says. I dethrone God if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my ideas. God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he is up to. You hear that? I will find rest nowhere but in his will, and that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably, beyond my largest notion of what he is up to. Jesus is confusing, even to those who love him. And you will be tempted in your life, as I have been tempted in my life, and I trust I will be again, to say to him, how can you treat me this way? Don't you know I am in great distress? And often he will give you no answer. Are you ready for that? In fact, will you trust him in the middle of that? Why? Why why should we trust him? Well, I think Luke tells us. Note verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. As we see thirdly and quickly that Jesus as the perfect substitute. You need to understand verse 51 in light of verse 49. You you need to understand his actions here in verse 51 in light of the words that he said in, in the previous verse. He has said, God is my father. 
I'm in my father's house. This is what I must be doing. My relationship with you is now fundamentally changed. In fact, every relationship I have is now relativized compared to my relationship with God. I am the son of God. I am the Passover. I am the temple. I am the lamb. And and to be honest, I don't have to obey you. In fact, you know why? I created you. In fact, I'm older than you. And the only child who ever said to his mom, I'm older than you. I, I, am, I am the second person of God. I am the son of God. And he declares this, I must be in my father's house. And we expect verse 51 to read, and Mary and Joseph moved to the temple and were subservient to Jesus. And yet we read, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Why does he go down and obey them, knowing what he now knows? I think there's probably many answers to that. But at the very least, he's doing it for you. He is taking your place, living a perfect human life that he might accrue righteousness to give you. Do not think I have come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill it. He has been tempted in every way and yet without sin. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death. The Son of God became a human to take our place. Why should you trust him? Why trust Jesus? Because he is totally committed to the point of death to the very ones he confounds and confuses and doesn't follow your expectations. Remember when, when Jesus is in the boat and the, and the storm rises up on, on the lake and, and everybody begins to freak out and they wake up Jesus and, and Jesus rebukes them before Um, Or he rebukes them during that time. Remember what he says to them? He says, where is your faith? Now notice he doesn't say, why don't you have faith? He says, where did you put it? In other words, by now you should know enough about me. You should have enough faith in me and you're not using your faith. They're saying, master, don't you care if we perish? Don't you care if we die as they wake him up? And you see, their premise is, if you love us, you will not let us go through anything bad. You will not let us feel like we're sinking. You will not let storms come into our life. Jesus is saying, I do love you. It's not because your life is easy and you don't have storms. I love you because I am willing to head into the storm of the eternal judgment of a holy God for sinners like you. Therefore, you can trust me in the midst of chaos and confusion. There's many applications to this passage, but I think we just need to focus in on You need to trust Christ when he confuses you. In fact, notice what Mary does. It doesn't fit. It's just it, verse 51. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. I don't think I'd be treasuring this situation if I was his dad in this time. I mean, she's confused. She's going through great hardship. She takes it all in. And she treasures She trusts him. She trusts. You see, the Christian life is not a series of decisions, is it? It's, it's not, it's, it's not like, uh, one decision after another. It's just one decision. I, I will trust Jesus Christ no matter what, no matter when, no matter where. Now, there's many applications to that, and we have to reapply our lives day by day. 
And he's going to call us. He's going to challenge that commitment. I wonder, maybe there are some people here this morning that need a fresh devotion to Jesus, a fresh commitment to him, a fresh affirmation to him. Maybe there are friends here this morning that don't even know him. Don't, don't even understand him. Certainly have not given their life to him. Perhaps you would understand that he has come to this world to take your place, to die on the cross for your sin, that you might be received by a holy God who has forgiven you for all that you have done and all that you will ever do because Christ has paid your penalty. The Bible says if you will simply confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the rest of us, we, we need to hold tight on Jesus. I just feel that, that there may be someone here today who's struggling. Someone here today is just in the middle of hardship. Maybe even now God's working in your heart. Maybe you can even say to God, in fact, just let's bow our heads together. There's someone here that needs to reaffirm their trust in Christ in the middle of chaos and hardship. Perhaps you'll pray like this. I trust you, Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became a human to be my substitute. And therefore, I trust you no matter when, no matter where, and no matter what. I am yours. And you may do with me whatever pleases you. And I trust you. Father, we want to trust Jesus. We don't want to have you follow us around and serve us and do everything we say for you to do. We want to follow you. We want to be followers of Christ And do what He calls us to do, no matter how hard or challenging or confounding for you. We know you will give us nothing that we cannot endure, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. You are a very present help in times of trouble, and we will not walk this path alone. Our God who loves us is with us. Help us. Help us to walk by faith. Help us to walk into the storms of life, the confusion and the mystery and the hardship and the failed expectation, knowing that we have what we need, namely Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.